I don't believe in God because science and religion don't match up. How can I believe when Christians are such hypocrites? How can I believe when children are dying of starvation all around the world? How could I believe with all the hate in the world? I don't believe because of God's view of women. I don't believe because of God's view of sexuality. Because the Bible is a fairy tale. At both campuses, I will tell you, you have not heard anything until you have heard me rap. It is amazing, to say the least. We're not going to go with what kind of amazing, it's just amazing, okay? Let me just say that. Well, it was a little over 25 years ago. I was 21. I had been married to Lynette for about three years. I was in Bible college studying to be a pastor. I was doing youth ministry. I started this little building company, and things were going really, really well for us. Um, I was actually doing a job, putting in a tub one day at this house, and uh, a, a tub surround, and, and I'm working there, and Lynette comes to join me for lunch, and so she's standing at the door, kind of waiting for me to finish up uh, so we could leave, and uh, I'm, I'm pounding, I'm actually nailing in the little frame for this tub, and it's when I drop the hammer into the tub. Now, very strange, but the, the hammer dropped from my hand and went right down my leg and landed on my foot. And I started to weep like a little baby. Like literally weep like a baby. My wife is looking at me going, did that hurt? Because she couldn't figure this out. Did that hurt? And I'm like, no, it didn't hurt. And she's like, what's the problem? I don't know, because really it was the best of all the worlds, right? Because that hammer could have came down and cracked the fiberglass and cost me a bunch of money, but it landed softly on my foot and it was no problem at all. But I am weeping like a baby. And she goes, there is something wrong with you. There is just something wrong with you, you know, and I'm, she made an appointment to the doctor, went to the doctor in Monroe and uh, did some blood tests. Doctor comes in and says, son, you have diabetes type one and you're in trouble and it is not good. It is really bad. And I look at this doctor and I say, you're crazy. You have no idea what you're talking about. Because I'm 21 and I'm in health and good shape and I exercise and, and you, you don't know what you're talking about. And the doctor says, no, 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 you listen to me. He says, you have diabetes, type 1. And you're going to have to take insulin shots the rest of your life to survive. And I said, I'm getting a second opinion, man. You don't, who gave you your license, man? You don't know what you're talking about. There is no way that I'm sick like that. And I'm getting ready to leave. I said, I'm going to go get a different opinion. He says, I'll see you in a few weeks. I said, what do you mean? I'm not going to see you? I'm not going to see you. I'm not coming back here. He says, no, no, no. I'm not going to see you in the office. I'm going to see you at your funeral because you'll be dead in a few weeks if you don't take these shots. And I remember walking out of that office with my head spinning. I'm a kid, right? And, and I was so angry and so hurt. So disappointed, upset, every kind of word you could possibly think of. I remember driving out of that little office and it was near I-75, exit 15 in Monroe, and there is this Vietnam Memorial Park with this helicopter and tank and all that in there. And I remember whipping my little car in there and uh, pulling in and I pulled in right next to that little helicopter display thing. And I was so angry. I got out of that car and I was pounding on the hood and I was yelling at God and I was angry and I was hurt and I was just, I was lost. I was a wreck 
Because I was thinking, God, you got the wrong man. God, I'm one of the good guys. I'm, I'm ministering to teenagers. I'm trying to become a pastor. Uh, God, I want to do, I'm doing it right in my life. I'm married to the woman I'm with. And, and, and I'm doing this right, God. You got the wrong man. My guess is I'm not the only one who's had an experience like that. Am I right? I mean, I think almost every single person in this room, if you've lived long enough, you have had this moment where things just come unraveled and suffering comes, pain comes, disappointment comes, and you just think that God has abandoned you. You just think that somehow that you're singled out, that life isn't fair, that somehow you don't deserve this. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Where you just feel, how come? Why me, God? Why me? And it's in moments like that that we start to doubt God. You know, we're in the middle of this series called I Don't Believe, and we've been talking about this idea that almost every one of us, at one point or another, struggles with the very belief in God, the, the very existence of God, where, where we've been asking some big questions and we've been trying to talk about honest answers because there are questions about God's existence that, that, that are real, that need to be talked about. But today, I think we're going to wade into some of the deepest waters that humanity has ever sw swam in. We're going to talk about something that is real to every single person in this room. You see, because if you're like me, you turn on the news in the evening and you will see terrorism, you will see violence, you will see murder, you will see uh, a country divided, you will see uh, disease and you will see wreckage, you will see hurricanes and natural disasters and you will see robbery and people struggling and you will see rape and you will see all sorts of crazy things in this world, enough that you would wake up one day and you would go, where is God in all of this? Where is he in all of this? Because, friends, because somewhere along the way, we realize that it's not just out there in the big bad world, but that suffering comes to each of us. That it's not just out there, but it's inside of us. It's in our family. It's in our home, and it's in our life. And friends, when that happens, you start asking the question that millions of people have asked. You start to say, well, how can God be a good and loving and all-powerful God and yet allow terrible things to happen to good people. Have you heard that before? Have you thought that before? I have, for sure. Because you think if God is real, then why doesn't he do something about it? If God is real, where is he? If God is real, then why doesn't he care about the struggles of humanity? And I think this is real for every single one of us in this room. No matter if you believe or don't believe, this rocks our world every single time. Uh, there is this very famous, uh, popular uh, Scottish philosopher. He was an atheist. His name is David Hume. He's dead now. Uh, he died back in the 1700s. Uh, and, and he said it like this. Listen carefully. He was at the front end of this thing called the Enlightenment, uh, Enlightenment move, Movement. He writes, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. In other words, he's not powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent, which means basically he doesn't really care about us. Uh, is he both able and willing? And then he asks this question. It's the same question that humanity has been asking forever. He says, why then is there evil? In other words, in other words, listen, if God could, he would. If God was able, most certainly he would because God is supposed to be loving and caring and good to us. Then why doesn't he enter our world and do something about the pain? 
Do something about the uh, suffering. Do something about the struggle. Uh, Many people would say that this is the biggest challenge to the existence of God himself, uh, or at least the the biggest challenge to a God who is loving and good and and personal. Uh, It's often been called the problem of pain, or it's been called the problem of suffering or injustice or the problem of evil. And for many that float in these atheistic thinking circles, they would call this the rock of atheism because it's the question that comes up over and over and over and over and over again. How can God exist and allow the kind of evil that we see in this world? The idea of suffering, I think, is the biggest issue of faith that any of us in this room are gonna have to struggle through and to figure out for ourselves. As a matter of fact, if you uh, follow any pop culture stuff, they do all these surveys, right? And, and, and there are these surveys out there that say, uh, they ask people the question, if you had a chance to talk to God and you could ask God one question, you know what's always at the very top of the responses? It's amazing. It's always questions that deal with the why of life. Why the suffering God? Why the evil in, in our world? Why the catastrophes? Why did little children have to die of cancer? Why is there cancer in the first place? And right up near the top are all kinds of questions that deal with not only why in the world, but why in my life, God? Why is my wife walking out on me? Why is my husband leaving? Why is my job downsizing and me getting uh, laid off? Why, God? Why me is always in the middle of the struggle. It's always there. Friends, these are real questions that need to be answered, that need to be talked about and thought about. Um, They deserve an honest answer. And so that's what we're gonna go after. But in order to think correctly about this, uh, we have to admit something first. I want you to think deeply about this. If we're gonna think deeply and rightly about this idea of suffering, the first thing we have to uh, understand about this whole conversation of God and suffering, that it is deeply personal. God and suffering is deeply personal personal. Um, It skews, because it is so personal, it skews the data. Uh, It plays with our mind. You see, because friends, listen, when you are in the middle of struggle, when you are in the middle of suffering and and, uh, your personal experiences in those moments, they lead you to doubt God. And because you think that God is supposed to be personal, you think that God is supposed to be caring, you think that God is supposed to come and meet your needs. And when he does it, when there's a gap between what you expected and what you are experiencing, friends, invariably, it plays with your mind. It plays with your heart. It plays with your soul. And friends, uh, that kind of pain, that kind of suffering, our hurt, our personal struggle makes us unlogical in our response to those pains. It makes us unlogical. Can it, friends? Ever been there? Come on, anybody in the room ever been so hurting that you can't think straight? Come on, I think most of us have. Um, so you think about this, like, like when you're a kid, right? You put your little finger in that socket in the wall and you get zapped. What, what's it going to do? Uh, if you're like any normal kid, you don't go, hey, that was great. You know, you, no, you, you pull away, you, you push away from it. It's going to be a long time before you ever want to engage that socket again, right? It's going to be a long time before you ever trust that anything good is going to come out of that, that plug, Friends, it is the same way with God. It is the same way. Because when we experience personal pain from a God who is supposed to care about us, we pull away. And we have second thoughts about trusting him. 
about thinking that he is good, that he is caring. But friends, listen to me. It doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always, uh, it's not always right to assume that it works this way for everybody. In other words, not everybody experiences pain and then runs from God. Not everybody. Uh, This is one of the problems with the new atheist movement that we have been talking about. Uh, And I think it's an honest question, but I think I think they try to lump in all of humanity. They throw this very wide net out there and you hear it over and over. It's in all of the writings. It's in all of the TV shows. It's in every interview. It's in every debate. They throw this wide net out there and they say, well, well, explain suffering. If God is good and if God is powerful, if God cares about humanity, then why evil? Why pain? Why suffering? And a whole bunch of people hear that and you start to go, yeah, that's a good question. That's a fair question. Where is God? And a whole bunch of people start to pull away from this thing called faith, if not dismiss God all together. But friends, I would think that would be a terrible mistake if we did that. Because pain doesn't always do that to people. It doesn't always have to do that. Uh, you, You can't use other people's pain to build your case against God. That is insulting. Let me explain. Let me explain. Because I think if you were to talk to people around the world, especially people in third world countries who have gone through struggles, who have gone through pain, you're going to find something surprising. You're going to find for a whole bunch of people, and I would even submit a whole bunch of people in these rooms today, that, that the, your struggle, that your pain hasn't pushed you away from God. I think you're going to find a whole bunch of people who said, my pain has actually drawn me near to God. You're going to find that, that it produces something. Let me tell you something. Here's, here's what I'm telling you. For, not everybody, but for a whole bunch of people, pain has the completely opposite reaction. Extraordinary suffering actually produces extraordinary faith. Pause for one second. For those in this room who have gone through some deep waters in your life, many of you have come out on the other side and you are more in love with your savior. You are more in love with God than ever before because he met you in your darkness. He met you in your pain and pain moved you somewhere, right? C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the the one-time world-renowned atheist philosopher who later became a follower of Jesus and one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith. Uh, He's dead now, but dead people say some crazy good stuff, right? And and, and writing about his own conversion process, remember, this is at one point, one of, if not the world's leading atheists, ardently against all things God. And he writes about his conversion process and the role of, that pain played in it. He says this in one of his books. He says that pain is God's megaphone. And he says it was God's megaphone to get my attention in the way that nothing else could get my attention. He goes on to write this idea of, of uh, going through suffering and suffering deeply that he, it was in his suffering that he began to realize he had this strange need for God. He says it wasn't until he went through deep pain in his life that he did soul searching for something deeper still. Because pain cut him so deep in his life. He was forced to look deeper still to see if there was anything that would actually, he said, would be good that would come out of this struggle called pain. And he says it did. 
It produced an extraordinary faith inside of him. Do you know that the Bible actually speaks about this? We're not going to spend a lot of time in the actual Bible tonight, but I want to tell you this. The Bible talks about this thing called trials in our life. In the book of 1 Peter, it, it, it gives this word picture that there are these trials by fire that we go through. Anybody ever feel that in your life? That, man, you're just in the fire. When's it going to end? And it says that we go through these trials and there's a process that God is doing in you, that he's actually meaning these trials not to kill you, but to refine you. He wants these trials to grow your soul, not to wreck your soul. He wants these trials, these struggles, this pain in your life to move you somewhere that, that normal existence can't do for you. Pain, God says, is meant to take us to the next step. It's meant to, to drive us toward him, to show us our need for him. But instead of allowing pain to move us toward God, instead of allowing pain to, to, to grow our soul, to make us stronger, to make us better. What do we see in our world? What, what do people do in our culture? I mean, it's obvious, right? Um, millions of people try to medicate their pain away. They run to things like alcohol and drugs and sex and all sorts of things that, would, that are designed really to cover pain, to cover suffering. I read one of the most disturbing things this week. I mean, it just broke my heart. A report came out just a week ago that said roughly, give or take a little bit, uh, 35,000 people in 2017 will have committed suicide. 35,000 people. Friends, you don't get to the point of holding a gun to your own head if you are not in a deep struggle, if you are not in deep pain. Do you hear me? That's the world we live in. And so people just say, it's just not worth the fight anymore. And so they just want to end it. But what's even worse than that, this blew my mind. They said 35,000 people roughly would commit suicide, but get this, nearly 60,000 people in 2017 will die from an opiate overdose, mainly heroin. 60,000 people. Do you think anybody, any one of them wants that for their life? I don't think so. I think it is a masking mechanism. It is a coping mechanism. It is an escape mechanism for them. They're trying to drown their struggles. And even worse than that, this will blow your mind. This will blow your mind. It, uh, they, they released in the same study that roughly 10 million Americans will abuse prescription pain medicine this year. 10 million people. And even more than that, this is gonna rack your mind. 12 to 14 million Americans are fully addicted to alcohol. So what does our culture do when there's pain and there's struggle? Do they rise and get through it and fight through it and grow to the next level? I think we have a culture now that just says medicate it away, drown it away, find some sort of addiction to ease your pain, ease your suffering, to find some sort of escape in a different way. And yet the scripture says this. It says that God's purpose in pain is to refine you. It is to grow your soul. It is to take you to the next steps with him. It is to actually drive you toward him. And, and so here's what I really want to dial in on tonight or today. Suffering in this world is not a valid argument against the existence of God. Suffering is not a valid argument against the existence of God. My, my hope is 
And I know this might be a long shot, but I actually think the opposite is true. And I'm actually hoping that this will be a reminder, that pain will become a reminder to you that there is a God. And there is a God that, that cares about you personally. That is where I hope that we can end. And so the first thing I just want to submit to you, and you may want to take a picture of this or write this down, but I think that suffering is evidence for the existence of God, not the opposite. That suffering is actually evidence for the existence of God. C.S. Lewis, who talked about this megaphone of pain in his life, he, he later wrote this. Listen carefully. He says, when I was an atheist, when I was far from the heart of God, when I was battling all things God, he says this, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? In other words, how do I even know the difference between right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's just and what's unjust, what's evil and what is pure, what is good? He's like, how do I even have a measuring stick for that? But he says this, so when I was an atheist, that's what I used to think. Um, but how had I even gotten the idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Where was my measuring stick? How could I define what was actually evil? What was actually good? He said, of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying, he says, the whole weight of an argument that it is because of suffering, because of evil, that God cannot exist. He says the whole weight of that depends on the whole world really being unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Now, some of you are going, I need to read that again to figure that out. Let me tell you what he was saying. This is what I think he was getting at. He was saying that the moment somebody says that the world is full of evil and suffering, they've admitted that there is an actual category called evil. And the moment that you call something evil, it takes some sort of objective standard to measure what is good or bad. It cannot be objective. It cannot be moving. It cannot just be what you feel in any given moment. He says, if God is not real and does not exist, there cannot be a category called evil. The reason that you know something is hot is because you have felt something that is cold, he's saying. He's saying that the reason um, that, that, that you know uh, something is light is because you've seen darkness. He, he's saying that the reason uh, you know something is evil is because you have felt something that is good. And he says the only way that you would ever be able to identify what is evil is to know that there is a God who brings something good. You see, because if there is no God, then evil, listen, friends, this is so important. If there is no God, then evil is just subjective. Evil is movable. Evil is, is relative to the moment. Uh, it is subjective to what your mind thinks at any given time. And so, friends, you cannot put God on trial because of what you feel like today. That is arbitrary. For, for example, I want you to think about this for a moment. Evolution would not tell that an act of terrorism in the name of some God is actually wrong. 
Think about this. Evolution is not going to wire your brain for that. Evolution is just biological. Evolution is just chemical, right? And so if that's all that we were, evolution would not inform you morally about what is right and what is wrong. Uh, that it would never, evolution is not going to tell you morally that killing a whole bunch of people is simply wrong. It's not going to do that. It's not going to tell you that evil and suffering in the world is simply wrong. Here's my point. If you exclude God from the conversation about justice and suffering, you do not arrive at that naturally. You you cannot say that some things are simply wrong and everybody knows it. Evolution would lead to different conclusions for all of us. Evolution is not going to bring you to a, a moral objective standard ever, ever. So for example, if, if we were just animals, right? If we were just uh, naturalists, uh, if, we were, if it was just naturalism uh, that, that, that brought us into being, it's not going to give you a moralistic category of right and wrong uh, it, that would say something like this, that shooting a bunch of people is actually evil. If we were not created by a moral God, Listen, friends, if we were not created um, by a God who is personal, if we were simply a result of biology, if we were simply a, re a result of random chemical reactions, listen, if we are simply animals at the top of the food chain, then violence should not bother us at all. It shouldn't bother us at all, right? If we're merely products of godless evolutionary thought, then violence would be normal. And it would be very difficult to condemn it. Like, have you ever watched one of those animal TV shows? That's why I don't have a pet. It's very scary, right? You look at the animal kingdom, it is all about violence. It is all predatory. It is all about might makes right. The biggest dog wins. The biggest cat wins. The biggest whatever wins, right? It's like, if you got a chihuahua, if you got a chihuahua as a pet, oh my gosh, God help you. Because once that thing can figure out how to take you down, if that thing ever figures out that they could leverage something over you, they will. You better watch out. Because they're hardwired. If we are simply biological creatures, we have one instinct, and that is to survive. And so how can we possibly condemn violence how could we possibly, if we are just hardwired uh, through, this, through this evolutionary chain of events, how could we possibly condemn uh, the, the sexual predator nature that we're seeing so much in our culture? How? It's hardwired in us if it's, if it's biological. If there's no moral agent inside of us. You friends, if we exclude God from existence, then it seems to me that we cannot condemn what comes naturally to us. Evil without God is just natural. And let me tell you something, friends. Here it is. If we are going to put God on trial for evil and suffering, then you need God to exist. Does that make sense? If we're going to blame God for all the evil in the world, then we need to start with the idea that there is a God out there. Because that's how we know that there's evil in our world. Um, nature is not just in and of itself. You get this, right? Nature is brutal. Nature is harsh. Nature is condemning. It's just the way it is. Stephen Hawking, uh, we've been talking a lot about him in this little series. He's one of the leading atheists in our, in our world. He's an astrophysicist. Uh, listen to what he says about this idea of naturalism and this idea of moral values. Listen to this. 
This will blow your mind. It says, the terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of naturalistic selection. So what keeps you up at night, Mr. Hawking? He says, here, I'm going to tell you what, what rocks my mind, what sets terror in my heart. He says this, this means that we have arrived here because of our natural aggression. The only hope for mankind is that we are able to move to other planets in our galaxy and split up because if we don't split up, we will eventually annihilate ourselves. This guy's a real pot of joy, isn't he? Right? Um, but he's right. If that's all that we are, this is the end of man. Listen, uh, he writes this. Um, is it because of nuclear weapons that we're gonna destroy ourselves? He says, no, no, no. It's much more entwined in humanity than that. He says this, quote, as someone who deeply understands the nature of natural selection, I understand that the nature of natural selection is not dignity, and it is not justice, and it is not injustice. It is completely ambivalent to those things. It is neutral on those things. Natural selection is the survival of the fittest, irregardless of what we think we value, because value is an illusion. Remember a couple weeks ago in our little series, we talked about this idea that in the atheist worldview, and if you're an atheist here today, man, I, I'm so glad that you're here. If you're struggling to believe in God, we're on this road together. I mean, I think you are in the right place. We don't condemn you at all. Um, but I tell you this, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with this idea of an atheist worldview that if you take it to its logical conclusion, that the mind is simply an illusion, that you are ultimately an illusion, that love is an illusion, for you. And right here, Stephen Hawking, one of the world's foremost atheists says, and having any sort of value determination is just an illusion. And he goes on to say it like this. Listen, listen. Natural law, he writes, natural law knows nothing of justice, love, or dignity. At best, natural selection knows of tolerance. That's stagger staggering, isn't it? This is a huge thought that if we really are just a product of evolution, there is no way to have value of life, dignity for anybody or anything, that it is strictly a survival of the fittest mode. Uh, I love how Pastor Andy Stanley uh, uh, says to think about this. He says we would do best if we actually reverse our thinking about this whole idea of God and justice. Listen to this quote. See what you think about this. He says, the best way to rid the world of injustice is to rid the world of God. Because he says, it's only through God that you even get an idea of what is just or unjust. And so the best way out is just to get rid of God. Hmm. This is a really big deal. You know, Christians do claim that God is good. Christians do believe that God is just. And so, he later writes that, so if anything, uh, uh, if anything, these injustices in our world, they should make us angry at God, but not atheist. Think about that for a second. What a statement. He's right. He, he's right, it makes sense, doesn't it? He says, uh, he, he says, it makes perfect sense if you look at the injustices of a world to be angry with the world. He, he says it makes perfect sense to be angry with the evildoers and it even makes sense to be angry at, at a God who gives us a standard of right and wrong. But it doesn't make sense to, simply to not believe in him. 
Listen, friends, because the world is full of evil, you can't simply say God does not exist because once there is no objective, or standard objective, um, objective standard for, for justice, injustice ceases to exist. Once you eliminate a rule giver, you eliminate the rules. Once you eliminate the moral standard giver, you eliminate all morality. The best way to get rid of injustice is to simply get rid of God altogether because it is God who actually makes you understand what is right and what is wrong. And so friends, listen, if we eliminate in a, an objective moral standard, what are we left with? You know what we're left with? We're left with your justice and my justice. We're left with this idea that says you can decide what is right and what is wrong. You know what we're left with? We're left with white justice. And we're left with black justice. And we're left with rich people's justice and poor people's justice. And we're left with Nazi justice and ISIS justice. If there is no moral standard and no moral standard giver, then we are left to an arbitrary standard of right and wrong in our world. There is no getting around that. There really isn't. And so friends, at the end, what we're left with is your version of right and my version of right and your version of wrong and my version of wrong and don't you tell me what's right for me and I won't tell you what's right for you and I won't tell you what's wrong for you and vice versa, right? Does this make sense, friends? Are you you getting what I'm saying here? This is so important for us to understand. When we reject God because of injustice in the world, we don't solve injustice. When we reject God, we don't solve injustice. We lose the very definition of what is just. Can somebody shake your head? Right? And so why does, so here's the question. Why does a, why, why does a loving God actually allow it then? Why does he allow pain and suffering in our world? C.S. Lewis went on to say it like this. He says, God doesn't waste our pain. That that, that pain is God's great gift to humanity, he he writes. He says it challenges us to take our next steps. It challenges us to become better, to live at different levels of humanity. He says when you see struggle, when you see hurt, when you see pain, it does something in the community. It does something in the world. When you see your brother, when you see your sister, when you see fellow man suffering, it ought to do something to stir a difference inside of you. You know, it sounds cheap to say this, but there's an old saying in sports that says, you know it, no pain, no gain. And to some extent, that's true, isn't it? I mean, to some extent, it really is true. Has anybody ever gone to the gym? Come on. The first couple weeks, you're like, this sucks. This is not going anywhere. This, this is horrible. You try a diet. <laughs> first couple of days, couple of weeks, you're going, wow, what am I doing? Eventually, the pain, the struggle, it pays off, doesn't it? Come on, it pays off in any area of life. You see, pain is, there's a purpose to pain. Uh, there, there's a writer, he, he passed away in the 90s, but he was literally one of the most famous writers on the planet in the early, late 80s and early 90s. His name was Malcolm M- uh, Muggeridge. 
And he was an incredibly well-known journalist. Uh, for full disclosure, he was an agnostic. He was not a follower of Jesus in any way. He never claimed to be a Christian in any way. But he wrote something that I think was absolutely brilliant. He said it like this. He says, indeed, I can say that in all truthfulness, that everything I have learned in my first 75 years in this world that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not happiness. Wow. I think there's some truth in that. That what really makes us better is not one big trip to Cedar Point. What makes us better are the trials of fire, are the trials of life. They grow us, they refine us, they shape us, they move us, they challenge us in ways that nothing else can. I think suffering um, changes the world. I think pain changes us. I really do. Have you ever heard of Hansen's disease? Anybody? Um, people often get it confused with leprosy. It's really closely related to leprosy. And you know what leprosy is, right? It's that disease where your skin becomes white and ashen and literally it, it like your, your body just crumbles. It, it like dissolves and, and like your ear falls off. Your nose literally falls off. It is a wretched disease. It's mostly found in the third world, right? Uh, and the problem with leprosy is it's not a skin disease. People think it's a skin disease. It's not a skin disease. It is a nerve disease, the problem with leprosy is that a leper walks down the road and they cut their foot on the road and they don't realize that their foot is gushing blood and so they just walk through the sewer because they don't feel pain. Pain is a great gift that you and I have. Pain tells us when we touch something hot that we recoil from it, right? When we touch something sharp, we say, I don't want to go there. Pain is a gift. Um, I read a, a story about a, a little, uh, I think she's about three years old, and it was one of the rare cases of Hansen disease in America, found in America. Um, this family thought they had a perfectly healthy little girl. Uh, and the day they found out she had Hansen disease was a day that they heard her bouncing in her little crib, a joyous little girl. She was bouncing up and down, gurgling and making all kinds of fun noises. And they come into her room just to see what was going on. And they walk into her room and, the, and, and they write that it was splattered in blood. And they were shocked and they couldn't figure. What, what they learned was that their little girl had literally eaten her two little fingers off on her right hand because she could not feel pain. She couldn't feel pain. Pain. You want to know the reason for suffering? You want to know the big picture of suffering? Is that we live in a fallen world where we are wayward and, away, away, uh, wayward and away from God. And we don't pay much attention to him until something grabs our attention. And pain, for many people, it drives them away from God. But it is meant to get your attention to show you that you need a savior. You see, the problem is with our world, if we could have fixed our world by now, we would have. If you could have fixed all the suffering that you've gone through, you would have stopped it way earlier. Pain has a way of working into our soul like nothing else does. Pain has a way of, of, of making us reach out for a savior, for a God to look deeper still, to see if there's any meaning at all in this thing called pain. That is God's intention. And friends, if we as mere human beings can 
can look and we can warn our children and we can teach our children that pain is a gift. Pain tells you that something's wrong. Pain is telling you that you're heading in the wrong direction. How much more will this all-powerful, all-wise God know how to use pain in our life? I'm just saying. I think God literally wants to use pain. I'm not saying he gives direct pain all the time. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that God loves you too much to waste the pain that you walk through. That's all. I want to show you um, a story of, uh, of a friend of mine. Her name's Nancy. And uh, she's walked through pain that would be like the worst nightmare for any parent in this room. I'd like for you to watch this. My son, Mark Allen Parsons, was given to me on July 1st, 1981. And it was the joy of my life. I was 20 years old, so a pretty young mom. And um, Mark was a... Uh, happy baby. He was a kind and um, wonderful young boy and then also a very adventurous teenager. He loved the outdoors as well as riding motorcycles. Unfortunately that motorcycle took his life in 2001 at 21 years of age. He was involved in a uh, motorcycle accident where the woman who was making a left had not seen him and his life ended immediately. So the family was riddled with pain and suffering. And we had no idea how to get through this. There was uh, anger, a lot of crying, and a lot of questions asking why, why God? Why me? Why him? It was very difficult to trust or believe anybody that approached me about the Bible what God says, heaven, especially the, the line, he's in a better place. However, when we went over to the family's house, uh, the woman who was involved in the accident, it was interesting that the first question that they asked was, was he saved? And the answer to that was yes. And that was a joyous moment that they had and that we had as well. You would never expect to bury your children. It was supposed to be the other way around a long time from now. But God had other plans and I can accept that. I didn't teach him, love him, and 
care for him for that many years, for it to be over, completely over, it, it couldn't be that way. I have to believe that God knew when he was going to give me Mark and when he was going to take Mark from me. I have to believe in the Bible and what it says about heaven. The last time I saw my son was on Sweetest Day, and he had just met a girl, so he had a lot of love in his heart. And he had a lot of love in his heart anyways, but he met a girl. He met a young lady who was a Christian. This young lady that my, my son fell in love with uh, led me to Metro. And these are the best years of my life. Since coming to Metro, first I've never left. There's very few weekends that I am not here and if I'm not, it's because I'm traveling. But Metro has led me to want to do more. Just being in the Riverview campus here after spending hours and hours and Tylenol after Tylenol after working on this building itself was the joy of loving a church and loving the family and absolutely loving the pastors. My life group is single women over 50 and I dearly love them, trust them, and I need them. Believe in the good that the suffering brings. There's, there's good that comes out of the suffering and you don't see it immediately. But it will come. My name is Nancy, and I am Metro. Wow. How do you get to the point of saying, after something like that, that these are the best years of my life, I think God uses pain um, like nothing else. Like nothing else. If somehow we could look further than the next 15 minutes of our life. If, if I could have at 21, if I could have saw a little further down the line, um, to realize that God would use uh, the struggle of health in my life to be a better pastor, to be a better follower of Jesus, to learn to lean into him more. It wouldn't have been such a struggle back then. God uses pain. I want to leave you with just uh, one verse of scripture. Uh, King David writes this uh, 
near the end of his life. And it's found in Psalm 23. It's a very popular passage. And it says this. It says, though I walk through the darkest valleys. Some uh, texts read, though I walk through the shadow of death. He says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He is with you. I don't know what you go through or going through or you've been through. Um, it may seem dark, but he is near. He is near. He loves you. And you may not even believe it. You may not know it, but he is near. If you look for him, you will find him.